Hello, hope you guys are having a good day today. Here you've got a little snow there. We've got tornadoes down here in Albany. I'd rather have snow, but I do know the snow's very bad. So Lord willing, we will meet tomorrow night. But here we are, we're at Biblical Archaeology Today, a little daily podcast I do just a few minutes with major archaeological finds throughout history. So I thought this would be the easiest way to do our class. I may have to split this class up tonight into two or three. I'm not sure how long Anchor will let me do their uh, podcast. But anyhow, we're going to get started. Christian Evidence 2, we're so thankful you've chosen to be in this class. And of course, we just want to be able to give a reason for the faith that resides on the inside of us. So much of the world is skeptical. Even just a few years ago, it was self-evident that Christianity was true, the Bible was true. And now we live in a secular society, a scientific society. Some would even call it the technocratic dictatorship or the scientific dictatorship which says that, you know, the Bible is full of errors. And unfortunately, this has crept into so many parts of so-called Christianity and fall Christianity seminaries and even creeps into parts of Pentecostalism and things that people would just take uncritically the things that they learn in college and they seem so intelligent and it seems like entire academia establishment uh, says one thing, it's very difficult to defend uh, Christianity occasionally. So prayerfully, the goal of this course is to just give you, again, a reason of the hope that resides on the inside of you and to see that actually all the evidence is on our side. The appeals to logic and emotional appeals are not fact-based maybe a fact their feelings are a certain way but it's not fact-based so we're going to look at several different ways to defend our faith first of all to make sure that we're buttressed you know in all of those things but secondly to be able to share people with tools because it never ceases to amaze me how uninformed people are I saw a tiny clip recently of a guy named Bill Maurer. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's an atheist. He did a horrific video several years ago called Religulous. He just really mocks Christianity and the things of God. And he um, was just making so many claims about how since Christianity is only based on faith and not on fact, that we're the ones that are ruled by our feelings. And it is easy sometimes to go to a Pentecostal church and we pray, we speak with tongues, we bask in the presence of God. But yet, there, uh, this pandemic, for example, it's been very difficult in some cases for months at the time to get together and to do that and so even though christianity is based on community church many times uh, we have not had that luxury and we have prayer closets and those type things but uh, we god did give us uh, a noggin so to speak a thinking process 
And so Christianity is not just an emotional religion. It's not just based on feelings. It's not just based on faith with no evidence, but it is a very fact-based uh, circumstance. Even the early church went throughout the whole world preaching the resurrection as a historical fact. Now God would confirm that word with signs following. But it is incredibly fact-based. So your syllabus, you'll be reading a book this semester. It's probably the best book I've ever read. I've read several great books on biblical archaeology. It's probably the best popular handbook of archaeology in the Bible by Joseph Holden and Norm Geisler. Geisler, of course, is a big name in Christian theology. Walt Kaiser wrote the foreword, which he's written some good books as well. But uh, the things in that particular textbook, he has invented them extremely well. They're not wild and sensational claims. They're claims that would hold up in academia. Just because something's contested doesn't mean it's not true, because all truth claims usually are contested. Unless, of course, it has to do with elections or something like that, then you are no longer allowed to contest them. We won't go there. That was a joke. So we're glad you're here, and let's get started. So one of the Bible's claims is it claims to be perfect. Uh, Psalm 19, 7, you know, the law of the Lord is perfect. James 1, I think it is, looking into the perfect law of liberty. Many other scriptures. So we're dealing with a book that claims to be perfect. And we're not alone in that. Um, other religions, you know, Islam would say in Arabic that the Quran is perfect. And so uh, the... Mormons would say that uh, the Book of Mormon is perfect. So, But we need a perfect book. It's not a book full of errors. So let's continue on in our syllabus or our study guide. It's without error in any facet. This is what it claims. It's not just correct in theological matters, but it's 100% accurate in historical matters also without contradiction. So it was a big thing back in the 1920s, Karl Barth primarily, developed something called neo-orthodoxy that said the Bible is full of errors, but you can still trust it. It becomes trustworthy, a trustworthy document at that point. We obviously live in a world culture that's rejected these claims of the Bible's perfection by and large. Till the early 1900s, the above statements would have been taken as self-evident by anyone claiming to be a biblical Christian, and 80 to 90 percent of America would have claimed to have been some type of biblical Christian. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Ideas have consequences. A great book, by the way. With Satan and man's fallen nature working in tandem, things normally begin to degrade over time. That's, as you know from science in the Bible, if you've taken that, the second law of thermodynamics, also known as the fall of man or the curse. It takes intentionality to preserve truth. Just like a fence has to be taken care of or it falls down or a house. So truth is that way as well. Reasonable sounding small compromises and hypotheticals gradually erode truth until it's impotent and definitely not salvic. Islam would believe the Quran is perfect. I've previously mentioned Catholicism would believe the church is infallible. Mormons would believe that the Book of Mormon is without fault. Various scientific theories, such as Darwinism and Marxism, would say their processes and scientific documents would be faultless to various degrees. You know, somebody said the only perfect book in the world is Euclid's Geometry. 
And so any organization whose founding documents are in question, the entire entity is then brought into question. So if the Bible is brought into question, the entire realm of biblical Christianity is brought into question. Trust me, secularists and atheists know this. And we're living in a day that Christianity in America is under attack. We're very much not just being canceled online. You know, your Kevin Sorbos and various others, life site news, pro-life website just removed from YouTube. But, uh, you know, they're talking about Christian nationalism. Anybody that believes in Christian nationalism would be um, a domestic terrorist in these type things. And uh, and there's varying degree. I would not be a Christian nationalist per se. That, that Of course, we want everybody to be a Christian, but we're more for religious freedom not Christian nationalism, religious freedom is where we would really be because Christian nationalism has killed Michael Servetus, who was oneness, Calvin Geneva, October 27th, 1553, and it killed uh, William Ledra, Marmaduke Stevenson, and William Robinson, and the famous Mary Dyer in Boston Commons because they were oneness from 1657 to 1661. So, um, we are to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. If we believe the Bible is true, we need to defend it. It is the basis for all that we believe and teach. Some say that Acts 2.38, oneness and holiness are correct, but the Bible is full of errors. But we believe the basics because they work and because history and personal experience would buttress them. Now, I have been confronted with this in apostolic academic circles that people say, okay, we know the Bible is just this story full of contradictions and errors. But we still preach Acts 2.38 because we can see with our eyes that works. That is something that changes people. We worship because we see and feel the presence of God in worship. And so these are very dangerous things because our feelings will fool us. And, you know, what if somebody, uh, you know, voodooism or, you know, demonic possession or, you know, some types of Hinduism or something and they get kundalini spirit? Well, that works. See, they're moving in that. So, it, no, it said preach the word, not your feelings. And that was specifically about the end time. So how can he preach the word if you don't have it? He's exalted his word above all his name. Psalm 138 and 2. So, that is a fool's errand right there, regardless of who is pushing that theory. Paul said, preach the word. How are we to do that if it doesn't exist or if it's full of errors? You know, think about it. Do we make our Bible quizzers memorize error, you know? God inspired his word and lost it. God inspired his word, didn't preserve it. You know, all these are absurdities, but yet they're propagated in evangelical and even conservative fundamental uh, colleges and seminaries, and even, unfortunately, in Pentecostal circles many times. So the first thing we're going to do, I, I'd love, and, and hopefully later we'll bring some philosophical arguments, you know, your teleological and other arguments, um, and then historically verified documents. Uh, what did ancient historians say? What, what's the evidence there? But a, a big thing is we're going to look at some archaeology right now. And I know, I, I assume it's still there, a class on biblical archaeology is taught there. But we're going to look at some of the major archaeological finds and how 
they really buttress the authenticity of Scripture. And first, we're going to look at the Sumerian king list. So many of these I've done individual podcasts on, by the way. I just wanted to throw that in. Okay, the Sumerian king list, the study of ancient Sumer located between the Tigris and Euphrates River, is a cottage industry. And it is hilarious. There's these weird conspiracy theories that if you're online any length of time, you probably run across that the intelligentsia are just lizard people or something. All that comes from Sumer because of the fallen Anunnaki. And others are constantly looking for Nibiru, the mysterious planet X, that's going to come and mess up the Earth's rotation or something like that. And all these are in Sumerian literature. Don't confuse it with Sumeria. Okay, and so there have been several Sumerian kings lists found. Now, the fascinating thing about that, the oldest dates from 2000 BC, that's not the most fascinating thing, was found in Larsa in Mesopotamia. Okay, the Sumerian king list in the several iterations has been found in mention eight kings who ruled in possibly long ages. Now, I do want to say that William Cooper, with the creation science movement in the United Kingdom, he's the vice president, splendid thinker and writer and researcher. I don't always agree with his conclusions, but he does give mammoth amount of information. He has gone back to the original cuneiform and he says that the word that they're using